finishes him, he's no longer the true definition of, the, of God that we encounter in the Bible. And since the doctrine of the Trinity establishes that we said there's one God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, those three persons, then these attributes apply to each of them equally. And you may be already like kind of shaking your head a little bit to absorb that. Um, but each of these attributes that we're going to go through equally apply to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We're going to cover the attributes of God uh, briefly. There's no way we could delve into them with a ton of detail tonight. We're going to go into next week as well. Um, and some of these things are things that can only be applied to God. That's what we're going to speak about tonight. If you're in the Crosslands class, these are called the incommunicable attributes of God, which to me sounds a lot like a disease. So I thought we'll kind of use some maybe more easier, non-theological sounding language tonight, but we won't be able to avoid it all. Um, so those things that can only apply to God, we're going to talk about some of those attributes of God that can be shared or experienced by us as his creation uh, in some measure. So for the sake of keeping things simple and memorable, I'm going to approach these in two separate categories. The ones we're going to be talking about tonight are those related to his greatness. And we're also going to talk next week about those related to his goodness. His greatness are those things which belong only to him as attributes of God. And his goodness will be those things that can be shared or observable in the lives of human beings in some measure. So we're going to focus on the greatness of God tonight. So what are the attributes of God's greatness that are uniquely and solely applicable to him? <clears throat> the first is this, is that God is spirit. God is spirit as opposed to being a physical being. He does not have a body, nor is he made up of, of any physical matter. In his essence and nature, he's not visible, nor is he, he's, he's tangible. He can't be touched um, in terms of our senses. In fact, if you look at John's Gospel, chapter 1, which we looked at a little bit last week in terms of the Trinity, John writes in chapter 1, verse 18, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in, clo is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So God is spirit. He's not tangible. He's not visible. He is therefore also indestructible because that's you know taking things apart he, he's indestructible um, he's not made of anything physical and so this aspect of God's nature the reason we're talking about this first um, and his existence is its connection to the other attributes that are coming to follow again if you think about these it's hard for us to try to grapple with them and comprehend them as a whole because we're finite but we really have to take them as a whole. But we're trying to pull them apart a little bit to understand them, but it really doesn't do a complete justice. So we're going to do our best. The things we're going to talk about tonight in terms of God's greatness, not only is he spirit, um, but we're going to consider the fact of these three things. God is spirit. We have that one already, hopefully. There we go. God is uncaused. God is uncaused, or I think a word we use this week if you're working through the Crosslands material was he's independent. God is unlimited. 
God is unlimited, which usually comes, or he's infinite, which usually comes along with words that begin with omni, and we're going to get into those, and that kind of threw some people this week, I think, a little bit. What's this omni thing talking about? He's unlimited. He's infinite. He's not limited. And he is unchanging. He is constant, or the word that Dave used as he opened us up, he's immutable. And if you think immutable sounds like too big a word, just go to Marvel and X-Men and think mutants, and then you think mutants, mutations, changing, immutable. He can't change. Got it? Good. Hopefully you have that theological term forever locked in your, in your mind now. All right? So let's just go back to the beginning of this list. Number two, actually. What does it mean that God is uncaused? It simply means that God exists independent of any other cause. He's not derived from anything. He didn't come from anything or anyone else. He didn't come into existence because of the actions of someone or something else. So in this sense, it's not that he's self-caused, but more aptly put, he's just uncaused. He's not dependent on anyone or anything outside of himself for the continuation of his existence. He is completely independent. I want to encourage you to go to Acts chapter 17 for us to see an example of this. It would be helpful if I turned to the right book. Acts, there we go. Acts chapter 17. And Paul, in this sermon, is called in Athens, in verse 24. We see this, this dynamic of God's attributes coming out. Chapter 17, verse 24, it says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us for in him we live and move and have our being. Did you see that those aspects of the fact that God is uncaused, that he's independent, that he's not dependent on anyone, that he is not served by human hands, he doesn't live in human temples, people didn't have to build him a house. Rather, in him we live and move and have our being, not the other way around. God is uncaused. So that's the first one. God is uncaused, God is independent. But God is also unlimited. God is unlimited or infinite. So as with the doctrine of the Trinity, where we have no like, adequate point of reference in our experience for comparison, I think the infinity of God, his infiniteness, is, is the same thing with this. That um, God is a limitless, or even you could put it this way, unlimitable, uh, unlimitable being. He's limitless. He cannot be limited in any way. And so as we turn our attention to God being infinite or unlimited, it has impact in terms of space, time, power, and knowledge. Space, time, power, and knowledge. So we're going to go through those. The fact that he's unlimited in reference to space is typically referred to as what? Who wants to take a guess? His omnipresence. Yes, very good. His omnipresence. Omni meaning all everywhere, okay? His omnipresence. God cannot be contained in space 
because he is the one who brought space into being. He's the one who brought space into being. In fact, quote from a theologian that I was reading from this week, Millard Erickson, he says, he can be in countless places and involved with many different situations simultaneously. Now that may not sound like it right now, but that is amazingly and exceedingly good news for all of us because of this, that he is not isolated to one location preventing us coming to him. Nor does it restrict him in any way from coming to us because God doesn't move in the way we think of moving. He is everywhere present and completely present wherever he is because he is spirit. It's not like we approach him and we get the hand and we have to wait a little while for the face to come around moving towards us. We think about how big God is, but when you think of him, this is true because he is spirit. He is everywhere and wherever he is, he is 100% there. Very familiar psalm to, to many of us that we covered this week, Psalm 139. In fact, I have it on the screen here for you. You don't have to turn to it. I don't have to turn to it myself. Where the psalmist writes this, Where can I go from your spirit? And where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Now, just real quick, some of you might be saying, wait a minute, I thought you said God's a spirit and he doesn't have a body and all these. What's this hand stuff? It's, it's just language. <laughs> it's colorful, poetic language as the psalmist expresses this dynamic of relating to God. And what is he saying here? It's this poetic language again in the form of the psalms. He's saying, God, you're everywhere. There's not a place I could go in all of creation where your presence won't be there waiting for me. God is not limited by space. He is unlimited in terms of space. He's also unlimited in terms of time. When we think of this, we think of the fact that God is eternal. Time does not apply to God. As seen in the first sentence of the Bible. What does the first sentence of the Bible say? In the beginning, God. So it presumes a God before there is a beginning of time. He did not come into being, nor will there ever be a time where he ceases to exist. Think about this. God does not age. He exists. There was a slight difference in the definition that I gave us here on the Trinity than what was given in Crosslands. In Crosslands it said there is one God who existed or who has existed. And technically when we think about God, He is. He was, He is, He is to come. He exists in an, in an eternal now. He does not age. God exists apart from time, but He obviously operates within it. That we find throughout all the pages of the Bible. He interacts with his creation, but he does it in a way without being limited by time because he exists now. <laughs> Everything is now to him. And this is so hard for us to grasp because we're so not that. 
We're time-bound. We have diaries. We, we're tired. We wake up. We are bound by time. It's all we know and takes place and ex- we experience. It all takes place within the limits of time. But as with the doctrine of the Trinity, this idea of God's limitlessness, his unlimitability in terms of time, it's difficult for us to grasp. He's unlimited in regards to space. He's unlimited in regards to time and also as it comes to knowledge. So we had omnipresence. We had God's eternality in terms of God's knowledge. This is another one of those omni words, but omniscience. Referred to as God's omniscience is understanding that God is knowing of all things perfectly and completely. God knows all things perfectly and completely. He has never learned anything. He has complete knowledge perfectly. Psalm 147, verse 5. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limits. We see this in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. We see it in the life and ministry of Jesus several times. But one that I thought was most poignant, you remember when Jesus had died, he was buried, he rose again. After he rose again, he spent time with the disciples appearing and disappearing. And there's one moment at the end of John's Gospel where they're fishing and the Lord appears on the shore and Peter jumps out of the boat and goes running to shore, swimming to shore, not running to shore this time, swimming to shore and it's the Lord. And if you recall, Peter had denied the Lord before he was crucified. And there's this restoration kind of conversation going on between Jesus and Peter. And Jesus asks him, Peter, do you love me? And the conversation goes on. The third time in verse 17, Peter replied. He says, the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And through the Gospels, you see numerous times of Jesus demonstrating knowledge that would only be available if he had all knowledge. The writer of the book of Hebrews says it this way, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The idea of the awareness, the, the understanding of all things. So God's complete and perfect knowledge, though, also entails something. That is, his actions, his judgments, everything that he does is done with complete wisdom and is right. Because God has this kind of knowledge, everything he does is done with complete wisdom and is right. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 11, Romans chapter 11, and look at verse 33, comes in the book, portion of the book of Romans where the Apostle Paul is just responding to the amazing plan of God as demonstrated in the gospel and the promises of God, and he comes to chapter 11, verse 33, and he comes out and he says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? The rhetorical question is, nobody, right? 
But who has ever given to him that God should repay him? Again, God's independence. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. How often do we get the wrong end of the stick? Being forced to regret or revisit a decision made with imperfect understanding or faulty information. This is never a problem with God, which means we can and are meant to trust Him completely. Psalm 3. I don't know why that P is floating above there. That has no theological significance whatsoever. In case you're you wondering, it's, it's a typo. But... Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways. Submit to him and he will make your paths straight. See, it's important that when we come to God and think of God and say we're going to have a relationship with God, that we not only know these kinds of things which sound good and comfort us, but also know that the God who is revealed in the Bible behind it is a God who has all power, a God who has all knowledge, a God who has all these things that we can trust with all our hearts. He is unlimited in regards to space. He's unlimited in regards to time, so omnipresent. In regards to time, he's eternal. In regards to his knowledge, omniscience, and also in terms of power, that God is omnipotent and therefore God is able to do all things that are consistent with who he is. His character. So what can God not do? That was a question this week, right? What can God, what, or is there anything God cannot do? Well, God cannot sin. God cannot sin, nor can he do things that are logically absurd or inconsistent. Now, some of the discussions I had with people around the well this week were really interesting around this aspect of God and his power. The questions that came up were, were, really, were really interesting, but it's really, it's really not that complicated. When you think about God can't do anything that's logically absurd, God is not able to make a square with three sides because that would be a triangle, yes, very good. So this is, this is not a trick question. This is, could God redefine language, that a square? Sure, God could do that, but it is logically absurd to, to say that a three-sided thing is a four-sided thing. Or to say that something can be light and dark at the same time. They're mutually exclusive categories. It would be illogical. It would be irrational. It would be absurd. God wouldn't do that. He, but he is free to do whatever is a legitimate expression of his unlimited power. Psalm 115 verse 3. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. His omnipotency, his omnipotence gives him the freedom which he can will and purpose anything and it will not be thwarted. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. He can do as he pleases, exercising his power over nature, explaining the miraculous. Now this is a dynamic of human experience that I think we also struggle with because we think, well, can God go against the laws of nature? 
And from a biblical perspective, <laughs> the universe holds together by the power of God. He encompasses the laws of nature. They exist because it's the way he created his world. He, he does not intervene in the sense he can overcome those things. It's, it's not a difficulty for him. It's just simply another, ex the world existing as it is is an expression of his power. And for him to choose for a moment to change how all that works is also an expression of his power, his omnipotence. There's a passage in the book of Isaiah that I, I frequently revisit, and it encapsulates some of these things that we're talking about in terms of God's omnipotence. Isaiah chapter 40, starting at verse 26. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26. And then we're going to skip to 28. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name? Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Do you not, do you not know... Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow weary, tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Isn't it amazing that God in his omnipotence, even the mightiest of acts we've seen performed in Scripture, whether we start on page one and it says, in the beginning God, and then he brings everything into creation that we think at the end of the days of creation was says God rested, that he must have been exhausted. But he wasn't. He just stopped because it was done. He ceased. And he invites us into what he's created, his rest. As he does these things here, he says, Consider the stars. They're, they're there by his power, and he doesn't grow weary. Is that not mind-boggling to you? Was anyone weary when Friday came along this week? Or is anyone weary this evening, thinking about Monday coming? And all that's entailed. He says he does not grow tired or weary. In fact, what does he say? He gives strength to the weary. With all that he holds by his power, yet he still can somehow direct his strength towards us. The God of Scripture is unlimited. He's unlimited in terms of his power, his knowledge. He's unlimited in terms of time and space. And all these attributes, in a sense, again, they're, they're all one. <laughs> but they all interact in the sense of what Dave mentioned at the beginning of service in terms of God being immutable. He's unchanging. He's uncaused. He's unlimited. He's unchanging. He's uncaused. He's independent. He's unlimited. He's infinite. And he is unchanging. He's immutable. Listen to these verses. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. In his essence, who he is, God doesn't change. Dave referenced this verse as well. James chapter 1, verse 17, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change 
like shifting shadows. God doesn't change. Numbers chapter 23. And this gets to the heart of why God's constancy, his immutability is so important. Numbers chapter 23 verse 19. God is not human that he should lie. Not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? God being uncaused, his immutability means that he's stable. It doesn't mean that he's static. God's not frozen like a statue, unchanging. God is stable in who he is. He is active and moving in the world according to his purposes and what he wants to do. But God is constant and consistent. He is faithful and he is reliable. That's why him being unchangeable is so important. So as we think about these things, that God's a spirit, you know, all these things, that God is, um, you know, uncaused, unlimited, unchanging, so what? Right? Do you think about that? Any attempts to describe God's greatness that even if I had my entire lifetime to do it are going to fall woefully short of the mark because I hope what we've done tonight and what we're trying to do in, in this series and foundations is to think about um, the fact that at least if we get to know him in just the slightest bit, at least just a little bit of understanding who he really is, then we have to take him seriously. The God we find in the pages of the Bible should leave us and lead us to a position of being grateful. When we think about the fact that he is not dependent upon anyone, we are completely dependent on him. We should be grateful. We should be humble. We should be trusting that when God reveals something to us, when God shows us something in his word, when God gives us a bit of his perspective, we shouldn't call it into question. But we should trust him completely. <clears throat> and we should take great comfort, whatever you're facing this week, whatever the challenge might be, off the heels of Trev's great message this morning, we should take great comfort and encouragement that he does not change. How much in this life changes? How much will change just by tomorrow morning in your newsfeed or social media or whatever? It, it's just constantly, constantly changing. He doesn't change. He is constant. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. What he says he can do and what he says he will do, he will do because God is not a human being that he should change his mind or that he should lie. We can take him at his word. You can take him at his word. And so what does that mean for us just as we wrap this up and we think about what's, what's the so what? We should worship him. We should worship him for the great and awesome God that he is that we just sung to. Our God is an awesome God. He, he reigns in heaven above. It's his power. It's his omnipresence. All these things. This is who he really is. This is the God that is revealed in Scripture, who he's demonstrated himself to be, and the God who says he loves each and every one of us, and that we can know him in a life-transforming way. But if we're going to come to know him in that way, it's for who he really is. And we come humbly, 
We come dependent and we come with hearts who worship him for who he is. So we're going to sing. And when we're done, I'll give some instructions about how we're going to transition to our Crossland stuff. But Dave's going to come and lead us in our next song. What's that going to be, Dave? How deep the Father's love for us. So let me pray as he comes and then we'll transition. <clears throat> Father, I cannot find the right words tonight to um, match anything that is worthy of the God we find revealed in Scripture. I think, Lord, we can be very guilty of just being rather cavalier in our understanding of who you are. And when we come to the Bible and see what's really revealed in those pages, we have an understanding that you are a God that cannot be contained, that you're a God that cannot fully be comprehended. But what we do find is you're a God who can be known. You're a God who can love and be loved. You're a God who can be trusted. You're a God who acts on behalf of his people. Lord, there's so much of this and more as we've just scratched the surface of what you are, who you are, what these attributes that only you possess they put you in a category completely different than your creation. They put you in a category where we should not question you, but worship you. And so, Lord, I pray tonight as we head out into the week that we would have a sense of confidence and comfort in who you are, that we would have a sense of wonder and awe at who you are, and that we would have hearts that are filled with gratitude and worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.